Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hello and welcome to episode 37. I'm particularly proud of this episode, excited about this episode because we're addressing a topic that we haven't really addressed before. You know, sometimes in our life we do have a major crisis and we need some help. And other times we find ourselves looking around our life and feeling like it's just a bit dull, like is this it? You know, that feeling like we've lost our passion, we lost our excitement. And a lot of times the things that we had dreamed of, you know, getting the house and getting the job, they start to feel heavy. And so this interview is really about finding your spark when you feel like your life has dulled a bit, when you're feeling just Like you don't have the same enthusiasm and excitement. And to lead the way is Jonathan Fields, who wrote a great new book called How to Live a Good Life. And this is the problem that he addresses. And so it's a fascinating conversation. I loved speaking with him. I want to first share the sponsor of this episode. And that is my passion, my love, which is the tapping solution. And Right now, my brother has an amazing seven-week course. It is called The Tapping Solution for Financial Success and Personal Fulfillment. The reason I'm so passionate about tapping when it comes to finances is that oftentimes we're working so hard on certain financial strategies, but if we haven't cleared the stress and the limiting beliefs that we have, we will continuously self-sabotage our success. We will be reading every single self-help book, we will have these grand plans, but we'll never find ourselves actually taking action when we have these heavy emotions holding us back. And tapping is such a powerful stress relief technique. And if you want to start to learn more and to begin to discover why you may be struggling with financial challenges, there is a great free ebook. It's called 103 Disempowering Beliefs About Money and Success and How to Eliminate Them in Minutes. This ebook is completely free. You just have to go to thetappingsolution.com forward slash 103 for 103. That's thetappingsolution.com forward slash one zero three. And the other thing I want to mention before we jump into today's show, so many of you have written in and have said to me that these podcasts come into your life at the perfect moment. And I want to let you know that I feel the same when it comes to interviewing these guests. It's like I feel like every time I have to sit down and have a conversation with someone, it's exactly what I needed. I am in the middle of wedding planning And I am loving it, and (laughs) I can also understand why people go a little bit crazy. I understand how, for some, wedding planning can be incredibly stressful, and that whole bridezilla mentality that comes up. I get it. I've, like, tiptoed. I've almost crossed that line a few times. And I've noticed that sometimes in life, even the really good things, like the things that we always wanted, the house, you know, the car, the job they can become stressful. They can feel heavy. And it's sad, right? Because these are the very things that we've always really wanted. And I think when that's happening, it's really just a sign that we're not taking care of ourselves. And really what Jonathan teaches is how to take care of these different aspects of your life to truly be able to take care of yourself. And because of this knowledge and you know, just having this conversation with myself. I'm really loving it. I have just a few months left. I'm having a fun time. I do not think that this day has to be the best day of my life. I think that's way too much pressure. I'm just excited to get the family together. And when I have that perspective and I just realize, you know, all I want is just to have family together. 
and I know that's going to happen. So the rest is going to unfold as it should. So for me, it's a wedding, but for you, it might be something else. You you might think of something that you've always wanted, and now that you have it, it can feel a little extra stressful. So notice that, and notice what aha moments you have during today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I've loved having the chance to dive into your book. So first off, congratulations on your new book, How to Live a Good Life. Thanks. Yeah, it's been, you know, you know what it's like to write books. Yes. (laughs) It's it's been a fun adventure. Yes. And then launching a book is like a whole other chapter of that, of that adventure. Uh, Well, I've had a great time being on the other side, just reading it and enjoying all of your hard work. And in the beginning of your book, you wrote about how you wrote the book for one person in mind, but this person really reflects a yearning of millions. And there was this one sentence that really stood out. You wrote, she had flatlined on nearly every level. It was as if she were living the classic lyric from Pink Floyd. She was becoming comfortably numb. Can you tell us about being comfortably numb and this situation that people find themselves in? Yeah, it's um, it's funny because being of a generation where when I was in high school, um, Pink Floyd's The Wall and Dark Side of the Moon were sort of like all the rage. And I have I have like flashback memories of being in my friend Dave's basement with with uh, all sorts of funky things going on and that playing in the background. But that line that line from that Pink Floyd song really popped into my head because so many of us reach a point in our lives where, and very often it happens to us when we're a little bit further into lives, where we start to have responsibilities, maybe we have families, mortgages, debt, and we start to make a lot of decisions based on just what's going to service the maintenance of all these things that we piled up. And then life gets busy and we start to build checklists and to-do lists and then everybody wants everything from us and we have all these like agendas compounding and warring for our attention. And it's like we wake up in the morning and from the moment we open our eyes to the moment we close our eyes at night, we feel like we're just, we're just, all we're trying to do is not fall too far behind and we're maniacally busy, we're reactively busy because we're just reacting to everyone else. And then we realize when we actually, you know, when we pause for a second, all this thing, all this stuff that's happening, it's, um, it's not actually anything that matters to us, or maybe the tiniest percentage is the stuff that, that genuinely matters to us, the relationships that light us up, the type of contribution to the world that fills us up. And we've just kind of numbed ourselves to the fact that, well, you know, this is what it means to be a grown up. You know, this is this is life. This is just how it is. You know, you're not a kid anymore. Just kind of suck it up. And we numb ourselves because if we didn't numb ourselves, the pain of actually owning the reality of our lives and our days would just be too much to deal with and not take action. Mm-hmm. So the numbing sort of is the the thing that allows us to not do anything about it and and you know, just kind of settle into this rut that too many people call life. And I think it's 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 just incredibly sad because there's so much grace and so much beauty and so much life that I think so many of us have inside of ourselves that we never let out, largely because we're, we're, we don't really even realize that it's there and that um, we can let it out. We can step into it. Right. And unfortunately, too often, we get that really big wake-up call. You know, it's like life is giving us a nudge to change, a nudge to look in. And when we ignore that nudge, then something else sometimes happens that makes us really stop in our tracks and reevaluate things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true. You know, so many people end up with some sort of major health incident or either in their lives or somebody really close to them who's sort of similar age or close family that kind of shakes you and wakes you up. Um, the sad thing is this, though, that um, even most of those wake-up calls, once the immediate pain of it starts to fade into the background, most people go back to the same behaviors that led to it in the beginning. So if you look at people who've had heart attacks or cardiac incidents, um, and you know immediately after, they're like, oh my gosh, I need to change everything. And they make some really powerful lifestyle changes. They go through the phases of cardiac rehab, 
But then if you look six months out, nine months out, 12 months out, very often so many of the people, once the pain of it has kind of fallen far enough behind them so that it's not really present anymore, they don't feel the physical pain and the memory of the pain, sort of like the emotion that's wrapped around it. You know, they don't feel it present in their lives every day on a level where it reminds them that they actually have to do these things. Um, they stop doing all the things that would let them live into this better place. Um, I mean, it's interesting. There's a really interesting parallel with the work that, that you've done with tapping with this. You know, so much of that, at least from my understanding, and I'm a total newbie with this, <laughs> is that is that, you know, a lot of what a lot of that work is really it's sort of it's tapping into a lot of that latent pain and that latent storage and sort of bring it back to the surface so it can be processed out. Yes. And is that is that right? No, that's exactly right. Yes. And a lot of it is about finding what's amazing about tapping is it gives you also this safety to feel because we're often mm. so scared to feel. And sometimes that's exactly what we need because like you said, we've we're numbing ourselves. And when we're able to feel and process things, we open ourselves up to so much more because we're not underneath that fog that we're really trying to ignore. So I, you know what I, I love about this book and I love about this situation that you're bringing up is it's something that so many people relate to and not many people talk about it because it's not a huge crisis a lot of times in the moment. It's like that everyday to day life where suddenly you just feel like you're not living the good life. You're not living a life that feels exciting and a life that really fills you up, that feels fulfilling. So I yeah. want to actually gain more clarity as to what you mean when you talk about living a good life. What are what do we want to reach for? Yeah, and I and I just want to dip into one more thing there because oh, you 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 brought it up. I just I want to actually make it really bring it a little more to the surface, which is um, a lot of us I think don't we kind of settle into this place because we somewhere along the way we stop believing that living great, that feeling great, that being deeply connected, that you know serving others, that you know moving through the world in this profoundly flourishing state, we stop believing it's actually possible. Mm. You know, we've kind of given up and we settle into this place of futility. And, um, you know, I think one of the big things is just reconnecting with this sense of possibility and looking around and finding other people who are actually living this, who are similar to you in so many ways and saying, wow, um, I've been deluding myself. You know, this is very possible. And then doing things along the way to to prove it to yourself that it's possible in your own life. But anyway, we can talk more about that. But my when I your question was what does it mean to live a good life or when I sort of explore that. And it's interesting. I've spent a lot of years, honestly, probably decades now, deep in that question and trying to figure it out in my life. And um this book like like the ones I've written before really started with a personal question because I want to figure out what do I do every day to feel that way. And um because I don't, and I want to, <laughs> and I believe it's possible. So, well, what I, what way is that exactly? Yeah. So it's think of your the, the easiest way to to put it is sort of the a really simple visual that I that I share in the book, which is if you think of your life as three different buckets. One is vitality, one is contribution, and one is connection. And it, and a good life is when those buckets are full. So let's look at each one of them just briefly. So your vitality bucket. That bucket is all about optimizing your state of mind and body. So when you're optimistic, you see the world with possibility, you're peaceful, um, you feel a sense of resilience and strength. And when your body feels strong, as pain-free as it can be, disease-free, mobile, capable, you know, that bucket starts to really fill itself. When we talk about the connection bucket, what we're really talking about there is cultivating meaningful relationships. So, and those relationships can be with an intimate partner, they can be with really close friends, they can be with family members. Sometimes family members are the the opposite, sadly. <laughs> um, it can be with a like-minded community. That's really important, also. And then, if it's something that's meaningful to you, the the, a relationship with the just knowing that you're part of something bigger. You may call that source, you may call it God, you may call it nature, whatever, however it's meaningful to you. So filling that bucket is really about identifying and cultivating those relationships. And then the third one was contribution. 
And that's really about how you bring your gifts to the world, yourself to the world. So, you know, if you show up every day and the way you contribute to the world, um, the work you do in the world, and that may or may not be paid, by the way, this doesn't have to be your job. You know, when you feel like it's deeply aligned with the essence of who you are, that you're, you're sparked, that you feel like you're lit up by what you do, um, and that there's a profound sense of meaning, uh, that that's the thing that really tends to fill that contribution bucket. So for me, a good life is when all three of those buckets are as full as they possibly can be. Mm. And I'd love to go over some exercises, some rituals to help fill up those buckets. But before we go into that, when people think about this good life, and they've also heard us talk about the opposite, which is feeling numb, a lot of people get really caught up in wanting to find purpose and passion. They mm. think that if they can just find one kind of their big purpose in life, that then they'd be feeling, they'd be experiencing the good life. Yeah. What are What's your advice for someone who's struggling with that? Yeah. So I'm not a big believer in everybody having to do that in order to actually be able to wake up in the morning and say, you know what, this life is pretty awesome. Um, In fact, I think holding that up as the sort of like the threshold that you have to cross can be really defeating and demoralizing and paralyzing for so many people. So we, it's funny, we tend to look at, you know, there are these stories where you see, you know, like there's the kid who at, you know, six years old knows that she wants to be a veterinarian or, you know, at 12 years old, someone knows that they want to be a neurosurgeon or, and, and we look at those people and we're like, we think to ourselves, that's the way it's supposed to be for all of us. Rather than looking at them and saying, you know what, that's amazing for them. How incredible that they actually, they know why they're here and there is a single thing for them and they've identified it at a a really young age. And instead of saying, okay, well, they're the outliers, we hold them up as sort of the example of the way that we all have to be if we're ever going to really live that good life. And to me, that's not the truth. It's not the reality on the ground. I know so many people and I've been blessed to meet so many people who are stunningly accomplished in nearly every walk of life. Um, Many of them don't have a single thing. They don't have, you know, something that they would call a purpose or a passion. But what they do instead is they have things that they do that give them a sense of purpose and a sense of passion. So instead of treating it as this like singular noun that you must have and identify and there's only one, you know, treat it as an adjective and say, what are the things that when I do them, I get filled with this sense of passion and filled with a sense of purpose. There may be one, there may be five, you know, but the beautiful thing is that when you frame it this way, it kind of removes this real heaviness, this burden to have to identify the one thing. And it allows you to just wake up in the morning and say, okay, let me make a list. You know, maybe there are 30 things that when I really start to think about it, when I do them, I feel like there's a real deep sense of purpose when I do it. Like I feel that and I feel passionate about it. When I'm working with kids, I also feel passionate when I'm painting. I also feel passionate when I'm standing in front of a crowd. Or maybe I feel this deep sense of purpose when I'm coding for something. Um, So it frees you to not have to, you know, it it releases you from that thing that says you can't start really living the life that you're here to live until you identify your one thing. Because I think some people do touch down with that. The vast majority of people don't. And even if you never find it in your whole life, you can still live an extraordinary life, just treating it more as doing things that fill you with a sense of purpose and a sense of passion. I think that message is so important. It's it's huge because I find definitely a lot of people who are attracted to these kind of podcasts. And I even remember being younger, being like, where's my passion and purpose? And even while making the documentary film, being like, is this going to be my thing? And uh, and yes, you know, tapping was something that someone from the outside can look at and say, oh, that's she found her purpose, but I feel like the whole journey is so much more complex to that because we can really get into our own heads when mm. we're trying to find that singular thing. Yeah, no, we, we totally can. And for me, you know, the question for me has always been what enables people to actually move to a place where they feel like they're flourishing in all aspects of life with the greatest of ease? Because, I mean, face it, we're life is complex these days and the last thing i want to do is put up barriers or offer ideas to the world that basically say that you know you can't live 
you can't fully live until you do this one thing and it may take you, you know, your whole life or, um, to me, it's just so, it's so defeating. You know, to me, I, I really look at living a good life as a daily practice, not a place that you have to get to or a big threshold that you have to cross. It's like, you know what? You can start doing it now, this day, by just starting to do little things every single day that start to change the way that you experience your life. And over time, you just kind of wake up, you know, you're like, you know what? There was no massive awakening and I didn't have to blow anything up. But if I look back three months ago compared to where I am now, there's been a really powerful change in the way that I'm experiencing the world. And it's been gentle, you know. Um, and I think that that um, if we don't offer those options to people these days and we only offer what I call the nuclear lifestyle option, um, most people just won't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it would work for some for some people, people won't do it because they just don't want to endure that level of, of – um, disruption. Right. Well, that's why I love the daily exploration that you have in your book. And um, one of the things that I've noticed when you talk about the daily things that we can do to fill up these buckets, I notice that you oftentimes emphasize the morning. Mm. Why do you feel like the morning is an important time? Um, (laughs) Because for so many people, if we don't do it in the morning, it just won't get done. So (laughs) You know, and I'm raising my hand right here too. By the way, I'm 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 not a guru. I'm not a sage. I'm just a regular guy. You know, kind of going through my life, really, just trying to answer some big questions. And I and I'm a, and I'm a dad, and I'm a husband, and I you know I run a company. So so you know my life is full, and I know that if I if I want to do the things that are really deeply meaningful to me, or if I want to, if there are certain things that I know are sort of mandatory, like they have to be part of my daily practice that once my day starts going, um, it, it can go in so many different directions. So I do them at the very, very beginning of the day. There's a second reason also, which is that now the research is actually starting to get a little bit mixed here, but, um, there's pretty strong evidence to suggest that we wake up in the morning sort of with a full tank of willpower and with every decision that we make throughout the day and with every time that we have to exert that willpower to do something, that tank kind of diminishes. And so I would rather do things, especially if they're things that I know are really important, but I might not necessarily be looking forward to them. You know, like you, if, if the thing that I had to do every day was wake up you know, and make sure that I have chocolate every single day, it would take me no willpower at all to make sure <laughs> that that happens. I could do that any time of day. Totally cool. But if the thing I had to do was wake up and say, okay, you know, I have to write three pages or I have to, um, you know, I'm going to work out or I'm going to do a yoga practice. For me, even though those things may be joyful, there's also a certain amount of effort and willpower that it takes me to kind of get there and settle in and do them to get going. So I'm going to want to do that as early in the day as I can because it's much more likely that it'll actually happen. Um, And then when you can make it a regular thing, what happens is over time it moves from a behavior into a ritual and then into a habit and it becomes more automatic in your life. And then you don't have to exert as much effort or as much willpower. It just becomes part of what you do. And, And that's really the goal. Right. One thing I circled, you have a creed. I think it's the, is it the Good Life Project creed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you wrote in there, ritualize the mundane to make room yeah. for the brilliant. Yeah, that, you know, this was really fascinating. And actually, this was something that I learned when I was writing my last book, um, Uncertainty. And I was studying how people handle high levels of uncertainty for a long period of time. So I started studying the behaviors and the habits of all of these really high-level creators from entrepreneurs to artists to writers. And what I found was something that I didn't expect to find, which is that they actually, like all the the regular everyday stuff, they basically turned into rituals and took the decision-making out of it. So, um, and, and then where they had to actually do their creative work and innovate and come up with new ideas, that's the place where they were very unritualized. And what I realized they were doing is basically they were creating what I call certainty anchors. You know, they were ritualizing what they ate for breakfast, what they wore every day, where they go for lunch, you know, what time they worked out, what they did, everything, all the sort of simple repeated things that happened in their lives. 
they ritualized that they took the need to make decisions and exert any sort of sort of will or decision making um, bandwidth to them. They kind of took it out of that and just made it automatic, so that it gave them all of that cognitive ability and bandwidth to really focus on the things that would take it, um, where they were charged with having to operate on a really high level. Um, and I, di I didn't expect to see that, but you look at, you really look across a broad spectrum of people. I mean, Steve Jobs is sort of like classically famous for having worn literally, you know, like the white sneakers, the jeans, and the black mock turtleneck for years and years and years. Um, so it's it was really interesting to discover that. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. You mentioned before that you said mandatory, like there's certain mandatory things that you do. What are yeah. some of the rituals that are mandatory for you, for you to live the good life and fill up those buckets? Because I know there's yeah. many options in the book, but I want to know there what's are. mandatory <laughs> for you. Yeah, for me, my the, the, the center of my morning ritual is a mindfulness, a seated mindfulness practice. And which is, for those who don't know, it's a it's a really simple approach to meditation where I don't chant a mantra or repeat something. I really just sit, I get comfortable, I do a little bit of breathing exercises, and then I settle in and I just focus my awareness on the sensation of my breath. And I do that for 25 minutes. And very often, I'll just do it a little bit longer, I'll go to 30, but I have sort of a, a chime that goes off at 25 minutes. And um, the work there is that, you know, in a matter of seconds, all sorts of other stuff starts to come up. And it's like, oh, I got to do this today, or there's that, and what's happening in the world. And this particular practice isn't about keeping everything out. It's about basically acknowledging that it's there, and then it's a practice of letting it go. So I'll start by just kind of sitting there and saying, okay, I like the sensation of my breath. I feel it cool as it enters my body, my chest expands, and then my body sort of folds back in as I exhale. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, don't forget to pick up, uh, you know, like soy milk this morning. And I'm, you know, so then I'm saying, instead of chastising myself, say, no, 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 I'm not supposed to be thinking. I'm like, okay, I just literally say to myself, thinking. And then with the next exhale, I drop it and I come back to my breath. And it's, it's a really beautiful practice because not only is it very stilling, but it also teaches you how to focus your attention and it trains you in the art of dropping storylines and dropping thoughts, which is super helpful when you're somebody who torments yourself with negative stories and sort of like, you know, oh my God, you start spinning a story about this is the worst thing in the world and this is what's inevitably going to happen. And you spin this doomsday scenario in your head. Beautiful thing about a mindfulness practice is over time, it lets you cultivate the ability to kind of like as soon as that starts, Notice what's happening. So you literally, it makes you aware of where your attention is and what you're actually saying to yourself. Kind of hit pause, take a nice breath in, and then as you exhale, just let it go, drop the story. And then if you wanna go further, if you're just doing this in everyday life, literally then ask yourself, okay, what are the other stories I could be telling about these exact same circumstances that might be positive and enabling rather than paralyzing and anxiety producing? That's fantastic. And so would that ritual be something, would you consider it filling your vitality bucket? Yeah. I mean, that ritual is one of, so, so, so many of these things will have a strong focus in one of the buckets, but also a fair amount of crossover. So to me, it's a huge filler of, of vitality bucket because it's so powerful in cultivating my mindset and keeping me positive and open throughout the day. At the same time, it's also really effective at helping with my relationships and my ability to um, in my contribution bucket, understand what matters and what doesn't. Really just pause for a second and say, does this really matter? Or is this just kind of silliness? Am I just reacting? So it lets me respond and really focus on the stuff that's deeply meaningful. And with my relationships, it also helps me be more present, you know, and more aware of when I may be getting triggered by something. And, you know, so it's kind of interesting. There, there are times where I won't sleep all that well, and I know I'll be grumpy the next day. And I'll catch myself, you know, I'll be having just like, you know, a day with my wife and we're having a conversation and I'll realize that, you know, I'm feeling kind of edgy and grumpy and I'm about to say something that really has nothing to do with the conversation or what we're talking about. It's just that I'm grumpy because I'm tired. And, you know, what the, what the practice has done for me is it allows me to just kind of zoom the lens out in those moments much more easily and say, wait a minute, don't be an idiot. You know, this is, 
you've got this gorgeous, you know, intelligent, soulful wife, and we work together, so we're with each other every day, and we're having a, just a good, solid conversation. And you're, you know, what you're feeling has nothing to do with this conversation. You're just tired, so <laughs> just let it go. You know, don't react. Um, and it allows you to really be much less reactive and much more present in all of your relationships too. So it's one of those, to me, that's cultivating mindfulness, cultivating awareness is sort of, it's like the meta skill that makes everything else better. Right. Is there any other habit that is mandatory for you? Um, yeah, movement. So for me, and that changes on a pretty regular basis because I, I don't love moving inside. So I try and get outside as much as I can. But as you know, like we have our Northeast winter. So right. <laughs> the further you get into winter, the more you're like, I'm not leaving my house today. Right. So, you know, I have to get creative with that and I'll roll out a yoga mat or I'll do something else. I also, I have an adjustable desk that where I push a button and it moves up and it moves down. So um, I'll, I'll stand for part of the day. I'll sit for part of the day and I have this tiny little like a little mini elliptical thing just for my feet that I'll sometimes put under me when I'm at my standing desk too. I've actually done um I've done uh, comp video conference calls where I'm standing and I'm on this little thing and people kind of see me bouncing in and out of the frame and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, look, this is my commitment to being okay. So, you know, it's, and, and it's funny too, because I also know that when I'm moving, my brain works a lot better. So if I'm on a call where somebody really wants the best from me, I'll tell them, I'm like, look, if you want the best that I have to give, you're going to want me moving. Yeah. Oh, I totally relate to that. Well, what I think is important, though, to talk about as well with making movement a ritual and and scheduling it in a way, schedulize, wait, scheduling it. I'm like, scheduling is not a word. Scheduling <laughs> I don't know. I it. I kind of like scheduling better. <laughs> it sounds a bit sexier. Um, you're scheduling it. And okay, so let me start the question over again, because this is the problem that I think a lot of people have. They think that if they can't do the full workout class, then they failed. They feel like if they can't do the full P90X every day, or if they didn't do something big, that like walking doesn't really count, and some yoga stretching doesn't really count. I think a lot of people raise the bar very high, and, and then they end up doing nothing at all because they can't do it perfectly. Yeah, and I, I've seen that so much too. I was, you know, I, I spent a chunk of years actually in the fitness and in the movement world as an entrepreneur, um, both owning companies and also teaching, you know, everything from kickboxing to yoga to spinning to almost anything you could imagine. I don't even know if you know that actually. I didn't know that. I knew yoga, <laughs> but I didn't know kickboxing yeah, and spinning. And and I and I like I train people in boxing and doing all sorts of stuff like that because when I own facilities, I wanted to know every modality that my that my professionals were offering and I want to work with people so I could really understand what was going on um, and so I've seen all this and I've had all these conversations and look the, the bottom line is any movement is better than no movement we are no movement like being completely sedentary is is basically death it's so bad for so many systems in your body including your brain by the way if as you grow older, if you want to do something to preserve your brain function that's probably more effective than any other thing you can do, it's exercise. It's moving your body. And you don't have to spend 90 minutes at a gym doing this really intense stuff. It can be much shorter. And the research is, is really kind of all over the place these days. But what we're finding is that shorter and shorter bouts and sometimes a little more intense can really do the job. And at the same time, little bits of movement throughout the day are really, really important too. So that it's not just about, hey, setting aside that one moment where you do it. It's just making sure that you're just constantly sort of moving, getting up and moving around throughout the day. So, you know, take 10 minutes out of every hour, set a little vibration alert on your phone and make sure that you get up and just walk around. Or if you can't walk around, stand, you know, in your office, um, get a little mini trampoline, whatever it may be, just so that you get your body uh, away from being purely sedentary for long periods of time. It really benefits your brain, it really benefits your body, and it benefits all of your risks for some pretty major diseases too. 
Yeah. I mean, we all know that we need to exercise. It's not new information, but I do think that sometimes people only exercise because they think they need to do it in order to lose weight or to hit some major goal. And though you can do that, and that's fantastic, there's so many more reasons to move our body. And I think it's important to be aware of that, that this is not just for our physical health. It's also about our emotional health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's about I mean, increasingly as I sort of move into the next season of my life, you know, um, I'm focused on on both my mindset and my brain health as I age, you know, and I, God willing, I have a lot of years and decades left ahead of me. But um, at the same time, I know that the way that we actually um, treat our bodies in the middle years of our lives has a pretty profound effect on the state of our brain much later in life. And so, you know, I want to start decades in advance to do everything I can to make sure that um, my brain stays okay. And both in terms of being cognitively there and um, and also just in terms of mindset every day. I mean, exercise has a really stunning effect on your state of mind. It's a really powerful treatment for things like anxiety and depression and certain forms of OCD and anger. Um, you know, it may not be the cure-all for a lot of people, but there's a lot of research that shows it's a really effective treatment for a lot of people. Right. So we have a lot for our vitality bucket, and I want to move to the the connection bucket. Let's start with the struggle that you find people in. When it comes to relationships and staying on this topic of, of just kind of feeling numb, like things aren't really that passionate or or alive, and maybe passion not the right word, but where do you find people when they're struggling with filling this bucket? What's usually the situation that they're in? Yeah, you know what's really interesting um, is that I think there's a bit of um, we have there. There's something really kind of fun, funky under the radar that's happening with a lot of people in their connection bucket and their relationships. And that is we tend to focus, when we think about relationships, the thing that almost everybody thinks about is like that intimate partner. They're thinking about um, romantic love, you know, and it's the, it's the, it's the classic in love. And they, everyone wants to find that one person where they have that deeply passionate romantic love. And that's awesome. And a lot of people have that. Um, at the same time, that's not the only type of love, actually. Even when we're just in the category of love, there are actually four types of love. There's romantic love, which is what most people think about. There's um, what's called companionate love, which is like friendship love. You know, uh, there's compassionate love, which is the the love where you you feel others um, as you feel yourselves, and you want to help them. And then there's what's called attachment, where we just feel this deep sense of attachment to people. And But we're, we're so hung up on having to have the romantic love, largely because the chemistry in our body feels so good when we have that, um, that we kind of forget that actually the things that tend to make us much happier on an enduring basis over long term in our lives are those other things. And if we can have the romantic love along with them, that's really powerful too. Um, but there's one other thing that's going on that I actually wanted to bring up, which is that something in the relationship side, you know, that's a, a huge filler of your connection bucket that a lot of people don't focus on at all is belonging. What's kind of interesting is that our brains are actually wired to have to belong. When we when we belong, everything flourishes for us. We're happier. We're physically. Um, in better shape. We think better. We actually score better in tests. Um, and when we don't belong, we feel senses of isolation, which can be devastating on nearly every level. Well, literally, it, it craters our, um, our mind, our, our state of mind, our ability to think clearly. Um, it's a really interesting tests that have been done where people who feel like they don't belong actually perform worse in academic tests and their willpower creators as well. So they very often end up doing all sorts of things that they wouldn't normally do, like, oh, eating a box of chocolate chip cookies mm -hmm. um, because they don't have that sense of belonging. And so it's actually really, really important to have a sense of belonging in your life. And I think what's happening now, it's been happening over a generation or so now, is that the places that we've found that are going away. So we used to find belonging in sort of a tight nuclear family. 
And a lot of families, at least in the U.S. and Western society, are kind of – they're not splitting up in terms of they're not families anymore. But geographically, they're not nearly as close and they don't stay in touch nearly as much anymore, which is kind of funny because I know you personally. Like your fa- <laughs> your, your family is like you – know, you move in, in – you know, like We're like herd. on top of each <laughs> right, other. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like you guys are the exact opposite. So but you like, know – but I will add it's bec- – I think one of the reasons is because we moved from Argentina and we were so yeah. far away from family when it's such a it's there's a big emphasis on family in that culture that there's almost more of a desire to stay close because we're so far away from the rest of the family but it's it's true and you know it's actually very unique to the united states because i have noticed that from even going to visit family in argentina and places in europe the united states is really unique because there's a lot of major cities and it's a very big country and so i find that it's even more common for families to be splitting up and the distance is huge because the country is so big yeah and that and i i totally agree and you know i think part of part of uh, i i would bet that part of the reason that you guys are still so even like geographically close is because you you kind of came here as a family alone but also because you came out of a culture where that was really deeply valued yeah. and it's 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 changing in the united states a lot and then you also take away the fact you take the fact that the other places that people found this profound sense of belonging very in a generation ago was work most employers don't don't provide that anymore. It was faith, you know, like faith-based organizations, church, congregation, wherever it may be. And the single biggest growing group of people in the spiritual um, research right now are, are what they call the nuns, which is the people who consider themselves spiritual but non-affiliated. People are running from organized religion pretty quickly. And when they do that, they're also running from the community and the belonging, which they don't necessarily intend to do. When they do that, you again lose a huge source of belonging. And then local leagues and trade organizations, they're all going away. So we've got this need that absolutely must be satisfied for us to be okay in the world, for us to fill our connection bucket. We have to belong in some way to a small group or large group of like-minded community. And increasingly, so many of us aren't finding that in our lives. And my sense is it's causing a tremendous amount of pain. And a lot of us aren't aware of the fact that we have this gap in our lives and that that's a really big thing that we need to take care of. So we're not doing anything to fill it because we don't understand how important it is. So um, to me, a lot of my focus and a lot of what we do with Good Life Project is we really build community because we want to create a new way. Um, we want to create the sort of the reason we have our creed up is because we want people to see, hey, this is what we believe. If you believe this too, come hang out with us. And we've got a really beautiful global community now that loves each other. And they literally, they travel around the world finding ways to play with each other. Right. Well, I completely agree with you that we all want a sense of belonging. It's something that's most wired in us. And sometimes it can work against us because I see yeah. people sacrificing what totally they believe true. in, holding themselves back to please people who aren't lifting themselves up. And so sometimes there almost has to be a scary break from yeah. from that sense of belonging because it's bringing you down and search for a higher level sense of belonging, like a belonging to a tribe that reflects your own values. Yeah, I, and it's such a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's the one question that you always need to really keep your finger on the pulse of, which is what am what am I being asked to sacrifice or to give up in the name of belonging? And and if it's your own sense of um, identity, your own autonomy, um, your relationships outside of the group, that very often is, a, those are three huge red flags that this is not healthy belonging. This is actually belonging, which eventually is going to be isolating and destructive. Right. So if we're looking for healthy belonging, obviously you've created an amazing community. Do you have any suggestions for people who want to find other people in their own community, people who live close by? You know, what's that process look like? Yeah. So I I think what you want to look for are a couple of things. One, and, and this is really important, is shared values and beliefs. So really, and of course, to do that, first, you need to kind of do a little bit of work yourself and say, literally just sit down with a piece of paper and say, you know what, what do I believe is important in my life? You know, and and just start writing and see what comes up. What do I hold dear? You know, um, 
and just start writing and see what comes up. What are the like the, the big important values and beliefs that I have in my life? And so that can be one thing because a lot of people come together around shared values and beliefs. That can be a super strong source of belonging. Another source of belonging very often is um, shared activities or what I call shared sparks. And, and um, these are things where you're just kind of called to do them. So, you know, you may love um, quilting, you know, so there's, and there's, this actually blew my mind. The, apparently the quilting community in the U.S. alone is something like 15 to 20 million people oh, wow. who are avid, avid quilters, which I, I never knew until I actually interviewed somebody who was sort of a, you know, a force in that community. And it absolutely, I couldn't believe it because I wasn't a part of it. So I had no idea it existed. And it's huge and is massively devoted. And, um, and people come together and they just, they quilt together. And so think about activities. And so if you can, if you can blend them, you know, if you, if you can find sort of shared values and lens on the world and aspirations and then shared values um, and then shared activities, those things can be really powerful ways to, um, to find belonging as well. Those tend to be the two ways, the two things that really bring people together. Um, and then the third thing, which I think is super important, is that in whatever community, wherever you find it, you want to feel safe. You want to feel like you're being respected, um, you can be you, and that um, there's an ethos of we're all in this together and we all help each other rise. Yeah, it's so true. And I think it's also important to mention patience because from my yeah. own my from my own experience, I remember moving to New York and it took me three years until I found my people, you know, and yeah. now they're still my closest friends. But I remember being having the intention of, oh, I, I really want to make some friends, but I don't want just any anyone. I want people who where I can really be myself and where I can feel empowered. And it took a little bit of time. But by doing what you just shared of just putting myself out there, I was able to create a great group. But I, I think patience is it takes some time. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's definitely some people just stumble into it quickly. Sometimes the accelerator is if you're somebody that actually has a really strong set of values and beliefs that is built around um, some sort of existing institution or faith or something yeah. like that, and you're going somewhere new. And this is what a lot of people do to find community really quickly in a new place is they'll join the local, um, like they'll find the chapter um, or the congregation or whatever it may be of that sort of same thing that's local and join that because at least they know they have this like baseline shared belief. Um, it doesn't always, you know, sometimes it works great. Sometimes they realize that there's also, there's a whole bunch of other stuff wrapped around it that's very different from where they came from that doesn't resonate with them. But that can be an interesting way to um, just sort of experiment in the early days, especially when you're looking to. And the other thing is sometimes you need to create it yourself. Sometimes when you don't find it, you're like, you know what, um, I, let me get really clear on who I am and what I believe and what I like to do, and then just start to do it. And what's interesting is very often you start to attract other people who are doing it too or want to do it, and you can start to create your own community. That's um, That's been, interestingly enough, that's been my approach more often than not has been to really build my own communities and my own culture and my own ethos Um and that, that, in fact, as an entrepreneur, a lot of people have asked me over the years, what's the best part? Is it the freedom? And I'm like, mm, if you only knew there's not. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're like, right. It's like, do you want to work 18 hours a day for someone else or for you? Um, and uh, it's always been, you know, that I actually get to choose the people who I bring into um, my orbit and, and create the ethos and the culture that I surround myself with and create that sense of belonging in the community. To me, that's always been the best part of it. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if you, you probably don't know this, but when I first moved to New York, I started my business with my brothers like in Connecticut. We, we didn't know, I didn't know anyone in New York. And so I remember moving to New York and being like, I'm never going to make friends because I'd have this company that I just work by myself with my brothers and there's no one else who does what I do obviously not knowing that there's so right. many people <laughs> who do what I do but I was not connected to the to the world and then I I kind of was plugged into that world and I was like wow there's there's so many great people to meet but it definitely took a while for me to discover where to find those people and I think it's important to 
um, just what we talk about, like take those action steps and get clear on on what you want. And also just the conversation of spend energy on this. This is a yeah. huge bucket. This is This yeah. matters. Exactly. Yeah, it really matters. Well, we also have the contribution bucket, but if people want to learn about that one, they're going to have to pick up your book. So <laughs> can you um, tell us, actually, we only have, I have like two quick questions I want to ask okay. you. I know I'm running over, but really quick. I like to end with these two questions. Can you share one thing that when it happened, it seemed horrible at the time, but then ended up becoming a big blessing? Oh, man, there's probably so many of those in my life. <laughs> um, um, I'm going to say, yeah, actually, it's related to this book. Um, the book, How to Live a Good Life, is actually not the book that I sold to my publisher. I sold them a different book entirely. And I started researching that book, and the deeper I got into the research, the more I realized that I it, I wasn't ready to write it, and the research was all over the place, and I thought it was a big disaster because I'd been paid to write this book. Um, but I went back to my publisher, and I said, hey, listen, here's what's going on. Here's the reason you know, like that I think it's not the right book to write at this time. And then at the same time, I said, the good news is, in the year or so that I've been working on this, Another book has really started to form in my head, and I told them, you know, how to live a good life, and explained it. And they were like, "Oh my God, that's it!" Like, and then they literally even said, "Like, why didn't you sell us this other one in the first place?" It's so much more. <laughs> they're like, "It's so much more you. It's your company. It's you. It's what you're about." So you know, this thing that I thought was just like, "Ooh, I was so nervous to have that conversation," and it turned into this, um, you know, window to just um, really do something that was much more aligned with me at that moment in time. I love that. And then last question, if you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Hmm. Um, interesting. <laughs> I would probably be a koala bear. Um, I, cause <laughs> I see that. Yeah, because they're just kind of like really chill. Like they're hanging out. They're in nature all the time. They don't have to wear shoes, which I don't like to wear <laughs> shoes. <laughs> I guess most animals don't wear, don't wear shoes. Yeah, though, that's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> Taking that through a little bit now. <laughs> um, and they always just seem kind of like so chill and so relaxed. And um, and you basically find them all in Australia too, which I happen to love. So That's a great answer. I haven't gotten that answer yet. That's fantastic. So, Jonathan, if people want to pick up your book and learn more about these buckets and how to live a good life, where can they go? They can pretty much find it at any bookseller anywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, BAM, independent booksellers, um, wherever they want to find it. And if they want to find me online, the best place is goodlifeproject.com. Goodlifeproject.com. Wonderful. Jonathan, thanks so much for stopping by. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.